0: I don't think this will come as a surprise to anyone here, but we live in a society that is experiencing nothing shy of a seismic philosophical shift in thinking. As a result of secular influences, coupled with the decreasing influence of mainline Christianity, societal norms in America are being reconstituted. It's an obvious reality. But the question we often don't consider, the question I'd pose this morning, is what will this reconstitution actually look like? It is clear that a concerted move has been made to transform America into a society that is more accepting and more tolerant of all moral positions. Well, you know, except with the one position that believes in a moral absolute. This person is deemed categorically unfit to have their voice heard in the public square. But understand something. What makes relativism problematic to a culture is that it isn't the logical end of the thought process. For think about it. If all things are true, then by default, nothing is true. And if nothing is true, then life is void of any type of fundamental meaning. Again, if everyone's opinion matters equally, then ultimately, no personal opinion actually matters. And if no personal opinion matters, then the individuals who have these opinions lack any form of significance. I mean, come on. We do teach our kids that we're only but the evolutionary byproduct of randomness. In the end, all relativism accomplishes is bridging a gap. It bridges societal progress from theistic meaning to nihilistic meaninglessness. Think about it like this. The reason people move from theism to relativism is the fact they've been sold on an idea that's been peddled from the beginning. It's that God is the fundamental problem with society and culture. I mean, think about the very temptation of Eve in the garden. It was what? Eat of this fruit, for you'll be wise like whom? God. God's holding out on you, Eve. He's really the problem. If you eat of this fruit, you'll be like God and you won't need him anymore. And yet, the reason many then move from relativism to nihilism, if they don't repent and turn back to theism, is that when it becomes painfully obvious they've been lied to, as things inevitably worsen, the natural tendency is to become very cynical when it comes to life. There is a conversation that occurs between Matthew McConaughey's character Russ Cole and Woody Harrelson's character, Martin Hart, and the HBO hit show, True Detective. And in this scene, Russ Cole, Matthew McConaughey, he eloquently, and I'll admit, depressingly, expresses this cynical conclusion, this cynical outlook of nihilism. After explaining to Hart why he wasn't a Christian, Russ Cole explains his core belief system. Let me read you the quote. He says, I think human consciousness is a tragic misstep in evolution. We became too self-aware. Nature created an aspect of nature separate from itself. We are creatures that should not exist by natural law. We are things that labor. Under the illusion of having a self an accretion of sensory experience and feeling programmed with total assurance that we are each somebody when in fact everybody is nobody. Maybe the honorable thing for our species to do is to deny our programming, stop reproducing, walk hand in hand into extinction. One last midnight, brothers and sisters opting out of a raw deal. Pretty depressing, isn't it? Heart then kind of interjects by asking, a very logical collusion. So what's the point of getting out of bed in the morning? Cole reasons. I tell myself I bear witness. The real answer is that it's obviously my programming, and I lack the constitution for suicide. Understand something. While the erosion of truth is the clear hallmark of a culture embracing relativism. It is the erosion of trust that indicates a cultural shift towards nihilism may well be underway. And recent studies show that that trend, the trend from relativism to nihilism, is currently taking place in America today, according to a new polling a study done by the Harvard University Institute of Politics, millennials trust virtually zero, no institution in society. As a matter of fact, according to their study, the only two institutions that even score in positive figures are the military and scientists. Their research revealed that 12% of millennials, only 12% trust the press. 14% Wall Street. 18% 18% Congress. I actually think that that's start is really high, actually. They should feel good. That's a good number for them. 25% of millennials don't trust the federal government. 37% don't trust the president. 42% don't trust the Supreme Court. 50% of millennials don't have a trust for the police. Beyond this, a 2014 Pew survey of millennials found that the trend was not limited just to institutions. Pew found that 19% of millennials believe that most people can be trusted. When asked, can most people be trusted, only 19% said yes. And this is down an incredible percentage from previous generations. To the same question, 40% of baby boomers believed that people could be trusted, and 31% of Generation Xers. 19%, that's stark. Even when you expand the polling to include a wider demographic of American society beyond just millennials, the general social survey conducted by NORC at the University of Chicago confirms that, quote, Trust in other people is lower today than at any other point in the last four decades. In his article, Millennials Don't Trust Anymore, That's a Big Deal, Washington Post columnist Chris Cizella explains what makes this growing lack of trust so alarming. Now, he's not a Christian, by the way, but he writes, If we all become nihilists, The ability of politics and politicians or any other institution, including the church, to affect any real change among the populace becomes virtually impossible. Now, I bring this all up because Christians are not immune from the negative effects of social trends. We're in the world, we're not of the world, but we experience the world. And this includes this growing inability to trust people and institutions. Before this job, I spent 10 years as a youth pastor, and I can tell you, trust is eroded in the next generation. There are many of you this morning, whether you're a millennial or not, who refuse to vote. And this is why. You figure Washington's corrupt, Washington's broken, My vote doesn't even matter anyway, so why should I? That's pessimism. Many of you have commitment issues, figuring, well, you can't be hurt if you're never vulnerable. Many of you are scared of marriage, figuring 50% of them end in heartache anyway. That's why millennials are waiting later and later and later to get married. You know, there are some of you that I'm gonna go out on a limb and say, that you're hesitant to plug into a church, figuring that everyone eventually lets you down anyway. And while there are probably justifiable reasons for you being cynical, because a lot of institutions have failed, please consider this question in light of these things. Do you trust God? You might not trust any institution, and you might have a hard time trusting people, but do you trust God? God? Or are you skeptical he might also let you down? I mean, really, for a moment, be very honest with yourself. When it's all said and done, do you really fully trust? Do you take confidence in the reality that Jesus will actually follow through on the promises that he makes in his word? Do you trust that he'll be able to work through your present situations, and circumstances to accomplish his plan for your life? Do you trust him? (laughs) Do you even trust that he has a plan for your life, a plan for your future? I think while most of us would say yes to these questions, at least in the theoretical, and while we would all agree that trusting Jesus is kind of an essential thing when it comes to being a follower of Jesus, for many of us, the problem with trust And why we end up so cynical, even as Christians, cynical Christians, is that when it comes to trust, it comes back to a fundamental misunderstanding of what that word really means in the life of a believer. As we transition from Acts 24 into Acts chapter 25, it's important to remember that while Paul was incarcerated, he's in jail, he's imprisoned, And while his outlook was daunting, Jesus had given him some very clear promises. If you recall, while Paul was in that cell, the Jews bent on killing him. His fate held in the hands of a commander, Lysias. That Jesus, right, stood by him and gave him a promise, right? that he would testify in Rome. So Paul has that confidence. I will make it to Rome. I have no idea how this is going to work out, but I will get there because Jesus made this promise. And in addition to that, going all the way back to the beginning, directly following his conversion on the road to Damascus, he was given another promise that he would testify amongst a lot of people, including that of kings that he would bear Jesus's name before king. So Paul, his outlook's daunting, his circumstances trying, things don't look good, but he's got promises. Now, for Paul, this is where the rubber of his Christian faith is going to meet the hard road of reality. While his present circumstances could have easily led him to a position of being pessimistic concerning the promises God had given him, The question we have as we get into 25, would Paul fight that urge to be pessimistic or would he trust that God would come through in the end? And looking at how Paul practically trusted in the promises that he had been given this morning, if you're a note taker, you can jot this down. We're gonna see that trusting God requires two things. It requires patience and it demands wisdom. Keep in mind, as Acts 25 opens, Paul has been in the coastal city of Caesarea under house arrest for about two years when, on account of the brutality and mismanagement of the province, the governor Felix, a man we looked at last Sunday, was quickly summoned back to Rome. He's replaced by a man named Festus. It's where we left things off last Sunday. Now, since history tells us that the Jews We're sending a delegation to Rome to testify against Felix. Luke tells us that instead of releasing Paul in his final act as governor, Felix, quote, wanting to do the Jews a favor, decides to leave Paul in his chains. Now, keep in mind, there have been no formal charges levied against the apostle. He has not been charged. He's being held illegally. Imagine for a moment how much of a head scratcher this development had to have been for the apostle Paul. For a man who spent the last decade plus traveling the world, spreading the gospel. I mean, Paul couldn't stay in one place for very long. He was constantly moving. He's kind of like the ADD apostle. He's got to keep moving. He's got to keep pushing. He's got to keep sharing the gospel with people who haven't heard. But now he's in Caesarea in jail for two years. He's been sidelined. Staying in Caesarea, if you're the Apostle Paul, had to have seemed kind of counterintuitive. I'm sure Paul expected that before departing, Felix would probably release him. He could begin his journey to Rome. And yet this was not to be so. I think as we get to chapter 25, Paul's kind of thinking, what's going on? I've been in Caesarea for two years. Felix knows I'm, I'm innocent. He's leaving. He should have just let me go, but he doesn't. While well, on the surface, remaining in Caesarea could have easily caused Paul's confidence and the Lord's promises to waver. It's clear that he remained patient knowing that if God could orchestrate events to get him to Rome and didn't, all it meant is that God still had a plan and a purpose for keeping him in Caesarea. Understand something about the promises of God and about trusting him. When God gives us a promise, it is paramount, essential, that we trust that his timing to fulfill the promise always perfect. God's promises are perfect and his timing is perfect. Trusting God requires patience that you wait on God to initiate the fruition of the promise. A.W. Tozer wrote, what then are we to do about our problems? We must learn to live with them until such a time as God delivers us from them. We must pray for grace to endure them without murmuring. Problems patiently endured will work for our spiritual perfecting. They harm us only when we resist them or endure them unwillingly. So Paul is patient. Now, before we get to our text, I just want to, on a side note, kind of set up a profile for this man, Porcius Festus. Little is known of Festus historically, other than really what we're provided in our text. And from our text, there are two things that jump out about Festus. First, unlike Felix, he kind of took his job seriously. He was a noble man. He'd been sent by Rome to the area to really clean up Felix's mess. The second thing we know, aside from him being kind of a serious career politician, is the reality that he, he didn't really know anything about Judaism. And he knew, he knew very little about Jesus or about all of this stuff that's been happening in Judea. So it's not just that he's skeptical of these things. He's, he's ignorant. He just doesn't know anything about the Jews, about their law, about their religion, about this guy Jesus, about his followers. And we're going to see how these two things play themselves out in our story. Chapter 25, beginning with verse 1. Now when Festus had come to the province, after three days, he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priests and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon Paul to, to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore he said, Let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there's any fault in him. Before Felix's actions, uh, because Felix's actions had antagonized the Jews and unnecessarily stirred up unrest in an area known for the most part to be a tinderbox, just three days into his tenure as governor, Festus very wisely goes to scope out the scene. We're told he goes to Jerusalem. And his point is he's trying to smooth over political relations with the Jewish leaders. Now, knowing Festus's motivations for coming up from Caesarea, we're told that the high priest and the chief men of the Jews view this change in leadership as an opportunity to make a move against Paul. <laughs> it's been two years, and they're still bent on his destruction. It shows how much they hated him. Luke tells us after they inform Festus about Paul and the crimes he was guilty of, we can imagine how one-sided that conversation had to have been, they, quote, boldly ask for a favor. Now the favor, they asked Festus, summon for Paul to be brought to Jerusalem because he'll never make it. We'll send a crew, they'll lie in wait, and we're going to take him out on the way. So give us the opportunity. You see, they knew that Paul being in Caesarea kind of made him untouchable. They couldn't get to him. Not only that, but they knew that their case was weak. They knew if Paul was given a fair trial, he'd be acquitted. And so in their hatred, they want Festus to do them this favor so they can kill him. These are the religious leaders of Judaism. Religion, the atrocities done in the name of religion, Now, understanding the potential implications that participating in such a conspiracy against a Roman citizen under his control might have had for his political career, Festus wisely counters their request with a proposal of his own. While Paul would be kept in Caesarea, Festus advises that they send with him those who have authority in order to accuse this man to see if there's any fault, basically Festus proposes a retrial, promising that in doing so, he would resolve the issue. Verse six, and when he had remained among them about approximately 10 days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, Festus commanded Paul to be brought. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove, while he answered for himself, Quoting Paul, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do to the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? As the text rolls out, after a ten day stay in Jerusalem, Luke records that Festus returns to Caesarea where he immediately makes good on this promise to retry the case against the Apostle Paul. And yet, as with the first go-around, though we're not given the full transcript of how everything worked out, while the Jews laid against him many serious complaints, they still couldn't meet the burden of proof required to convict a Roman citizen. Same case, same argument, same result. Though it would seem Festus agreed that Paul had committed no offense, we're told Uh, by Paul, that against the law of the Jews, against the temple, or against Caesar, he had committed no wrongdoing. The entire dynamic does help Festus understand something important. Paul is a political hot potato. Now, as I see the narrative uh, kind of playing itself out, I think Festus proposes a retrial in Caesarea, thinking that there's no way Felix handled the situation correctly. Felix probably just used the situation like he did most others to just tick off the Jews. I think Festus honestly believed there's no reason to have this conspiracy. There's no reason to have this plan. Just come down. I'm sure that if a fair trial is given, this guy is going to be found guilty and you'll get the conclusion of what you would desire. And yet, now that they have sent down representation, he has the case. Festus reaches the conclusion that Paul's innocent. He's innocent of any wrongdoing. Not only that, he's done nothing to even warrant incarceration. Festus finds himself in what we would call a good old political pickle. On one side of the equation, Festus knew that Roman law required that Paul be immediately released. And yet, don't forget his mandate. He had been sent to the area by Rome to reestablish good relationships with the Jews, meaning that if Festus released Paul, it could have been a potentially explosive situation carried with it repercussions. So, knowing he couldn't convict Paul, also realizing he couldn't release him either, Festus, look at it, wanting to do the Jews a favor, Ask Paul if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem for a third trial concerning these things. It's my opinion that sadly Festus, realizing he's got no good options, chooses to now join in their conspiracy. So understanding this, verse 10, Paul says, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews, I've done nothing wrong, as you very well know. For, I, for if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. And this is a dramatic moment in our narrative here in the life of Paul. Now, whether Paul understood Festus was deliberately participating in the conspiracy against him or not, Paul did see how silly a proposed change in venue really was. He even calls Festus out, doesn't he? You very well know that I've done nothing wrong of which these men accuse me. It's kind of as though Paul is looking at Festus and saying, Seriously? Explain to me how a change in venue is going to provide a change in outcome. Because Paul knew that he was not going to get a fair trial with Festus. Under Roman right and privilege as a citizen, Paul decides to forgo a trial in Jerusalem by appealing his case to be heard before Caesar. And understand, I think this was news to Festus's ears. Like, this is great. Like we're told that quickly after conferring with the council, Festus says, you're appealing to Caesar, to Caesar you'll go. Paul's giving him an out, right? Like here Festus can tell the Jews that he was willing to do them that favor, right? I was gonna send him, have him go to Jerusalem. I was gonna do exactly what you wanted, but you know, he appealed to Caesar and he's a Roman citizen and I can't tick off those people. Like he's kind of got my hands tied in the dynamic. I really wanted to help you guys out, but I can't, right? Now, the flip side, while that might have helped him on the Jewish front, Festus does have a problem. While he may have been given an out with the Jews, Paul appealing his case to Rome created a whole new set of problems. Why? <laughs> there wasn't a verdict for Paul to be appealing, right? He hasn't been charged with a crime. He hasn't been found guilty. He's appealing his case to Rome when there's not a conviction or really a case. Like this is gonna look bad on Festus if Paul shows up appealing a case of no verdict or no crime, right? Kind of like now you're passing this off on me and I'm the top dog. That's not gonna work. This means that before sending Paul to Rome, Festus will need to come up with a justifiable reason why they had incarcerated a citizen without charge for the last two years. Now, I want to present a question here that I think is relevant to this topic of trust. Why would Paul refuse to go to Jerusalem and instead appeal his case to Caesar? I mean, there are those that might point to this as being possible evidence that Paul was being now impatient with God's timetable that Paul in doing this was taking matters into his own hands. And yet, I don't think this is the case at all. For starters, Paul was not afraid of the plot to kill him. Why? He had been given promises by Jesus that he would go to Rome. See, I think Paul is confident that even if he went to Jerusalem, these men are not gonna kill him. Why? because Jesus said he's going to Rome. So if he's got to go to Jerusalem, he would get to Rome anyway. God would supernaturally protect him. Nothing could keep him from Rome. But instead, I see Paul's actions here, appealing his case to Rome, as finally being evidence that he's now surrendered fully to God's will for his life, his calling. As we've mentioned over and over and over again, and we're kind of operating with this premise as we're looking at at the final events of Paul's life, that it had never been Jesus' purpose for Paul to go to Jerusalem at all, even in the first place. He'd made a mistake, fleshed out, so to speak, resisted the promptings of the Spirit, and went anyway. His prison is the result. But now, notice, he's given an, an opportunity He's given the opportunity to do something that a couple chapters back he was longing for, right? To go to Jerusalem and share the gospel. But he's also now given the opportunity to do what? To go to Rome and share the gospel. He's right back to where he started. The Jews or the Gentiles? The religious leaders or Caesar. And in this instance, I think Paul's decision is evidence that he's totally surrendered to what God wanted. (laughs) Back in Ephesus chapter 19, the spirit impressed on my heart, I should have gone to Rome. I wanted to go to Jerusalem anyway. That didn't work out well. Now I'm given the next opportunity to make a decision. Shoot, I'm going to Rome. Forget about going to Jerusalem. It's been nothing but a headache. Which gives me a bit more insight when it comes to trust because in appealing his case, we're finding here that trusting God, in addition to requiring patience, it demands wisdom. Paul, there's no doubt he wanted to remain patient, right? He wanted to trust in God's timing. He'd been there for two years. He could have played this card earlier, but he didn't. But Paul was also wise enough to recognize that another detour to Jerusalem was not part of God's plan. You see, the key was that any decision in Paul's control would be made in order to move him in the direction of God's leading, knowing that it wouldn't affect God's timing. Sadly, it's all too often that we demonstrate an inability to trust God when we willfully take matters into our own hands. (laughs) You ever done it? I know I have. God gives you a promise promise you're holding on to but a promise you're not really cool with his timing it's like come on let's get on with it God I've been waiting I've been waiting for like seriously two days and I haven't gotten a wife yet really right you know you promised man it's not good for a man to be alone I'm waiting you promised tomorrow if it's not tomorrow by the way, ladies, if, if, if on a side note, if this is not my notes, which is always dangerous, but if God has impressed on your heart, hey, wait, I've got the right man for you. Or fellas, I got the right woman for you. Just wait. I, I've got it. Take Adam's advice and, um, and go to sleep. <laughs> Just go to sleep. Because when you'll wake up, He will have done enough transforming of your life, sometimes taking a rib, so that, boom, there she is. You don't have to, you know, if if Adam was like, man, there's none compatible for me, and God's like, yeah, you need to go take a nap, and he's like, nah, I'm gonna go find my own thing, he would have ended up with the closest thing, probably a gorilla. And there are some who, because they step outside of the will of God, not cool with god's timing they end up with a man or a woman who proves to be a gorilla (laughs) here's the key when given choices when given decisions here's the thing make decisions that act in line with god's promises that's wisdom like the case can be made that choosing to appeal his case to caesar was actually Paul demonstrating his trust in God. I Could have gone to Jerusalem, but you know what? I'm gonna make a decision that's in line with God's call. Well, after some days, verse 13, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. And when they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king saying, there is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix about whom the chief priests, the elders of the Jews, informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, It is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets... The accusers face to face, that's my indication that he knew of the conspiracy, what they really wanted him to do, and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charges against him. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat there in Caesarea, commanded the man to be brought in. When the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him, of which things as I supposed, but had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died. Whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether Paul was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when he appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself tomorrow. Festus replies, You shall hear him. And that really sets the stage for what we'll look at next Sunday. Now, here's an important point before we close our study. It was as a direct result of Paul's willingness to trust the Lord, right? Demonstrated by his patience and his wisdom, that we're going to see the promises of God finally come to fruition. He was patient, and he used wisdom in how he made decisions. And as a result of trusting God, God made good on his promises. In chapter 26, we'll see Paul bear Jesus' name before kings. And then in Acts 27, Paul will begin his journey to Rome. But in conclusion, as I consider this societal transition, the one from theism to relativism to nihilism, I can't help but notice the way that this cultural reconstitution is taking its effects on people, how it's affecting people, how it's affecting you. C.S. Lewis once observed that, quote, there are two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, all right then, have it your way. And it's to this point, Lewis's point, that I would simply add that there's a third grouping. Yes, as Lewis correctly reasons, there are those who place their trust in God. And many of you testify of this, men and women, who boldly declare their confidence in spite of the circumstances they face. Thy will be done. I don't understand it. I'm not sure how it's all working, but I trust your promises. I know you have a plan. I know you'll work all things to the good. I trust you, God. You're worthy of my trust. As Martin Luther once said, these are people who pray and let God worry. And since this is their approach, trusting God, having confidence in God, their hearts are full of hope. Their lives, filled with the expectation and the confidence that God's will and his work will take place. These are people who choose to lay hold of the promises of God and cling to them no matter what may come their way. Lewis was even correct that there's a group of people placing their trust in anything other than God. We see them, right? Really all over our culture, right all all over our society. People who've bought into the premise of relativism, that the moral absolute giver is what's the problem with society. If we can get rid of God, we can achieve a utopia. They believe man as his own God with his institutions, the towers he builds to the sky are the ultimate remedy to the ails that face humanity. But it should be pointed out that this second group of people almost inevitably transform into a third. For when God says, all right then, have it your way, it doesn't take long for the lofty ideals of relativism to fall back to earth with devastating effects and failures. And it's in that moment faced with the reality that man and his institutions also can't be trusted, that one of two things occurs in our hearts and that within our collective social heart. People become apathetic, self-indulged, pessimists, like Russ Cole, depressed, the outlook bleak, rightfully so, or, or, They repent of their rebellion and they place their trust in the true God who has never failed to be worthy. What kind of person are you? Are you the type of person who can say, thy will be done. I trust you, God. Or are you the type of person who says, no, I'll do it. I trust me, myself, and I my own holy trinity. If that's the approach you take, at some point, I promise, the outlook will be very depressing. On October 7th, 2011, C.H. Spurgeon posted the following exhortation on his Facebook page. I have no idea how he did that. He's dead. Uh, You didn't laugh at the joke. I thought it was pretty clever. Anyway, we'll move on. Yeah, I mentioned several weeks ago how Martin Luther recently tweeted. I th- anyway. But he said this. Let me read it for you. O oh, blessed trust. To trust him whose power will never be exhausted, whose love will never wane, whose kindness will never change, whose faithfulness will never fail, whose wisdom will never be nonplussed and whose perfect goodness will never be dimmed. Happy art thou, reader, if this trust is thine. So trusting, thou shalt enjoy sweet peace now and glory hereafter and the foundation of thy trust shall never be moved. May I ask you, why not trust God? And so, Father,